Hello, faithful listeners. Well, another week of COVID-19 has passed and we're all still alive and kicking. As always, there is plenty to talk about, with more fallout from the Qantas commission cuts, increasing choruses for border reopenings and even a travel industry conference, would you believe it? And whether we like it or not, travel company collapses appear to happen whether or not we're in the middle of a pandemic. And this week, we've been exposed to some of the final gory details of the failure of Best Jet Travel, which was almost three years ago now. There is a lot to cover, so let's get into it. From Travel Daily, I'm Bruce Piper. And I'm Anna Piper. And this is News on the Fly. Just before Christmas in 2018, thousands of Australian travellers received a very unwelcome present when the owners of online travel agent BestJet Travel put the company into administration. More than $42 million was outstanding, and this week the company's administrators from Brisbane accounting firm Pilot Partners released their final report. After an exhaustive investigation involving an excruciating public examination of witnesses, legal action in Singapore and plenty of finger-pointing. You've been following this spectacle right from the start, Bruce. So what do we learn about BestJet this week? Yeah, look, like all collapses of this type, there's plenty of scrutiny in the early days as people weep and wail and gnash their teeth about their losses. Often that fades pretty quickly into the distance because generally uh, there isn't much money left when a company fails. So there's not enough to pay for a detailed investigation. However, in the case of BestJet, that wasn't actually the case because when it collapsed, it was running like an absolute steam train selling millions of dollars in tickets every day, and in hindsight, with every sale actually losing the company money, but that meant there was almost $4 million in the bank account when it was closed down, based on just the previous day's trading. So the administrators had a bit to work with, and they've definitely worked hard to try to pin down where the money went, and to try to recoup at least some of it to help repay the creditors. And did they succeed? Did the report say how much of that $42 million is going to be repaid? Um, Well, look, I think the correct term would be probably pretty much sweet FA. The good news is that uh, the employees will receive all their entitlements, but there aren't many employees. And it's pretty much cold comfort for the rest of the creditors, including all of those passengers. The maximum payout um, is estimated by the administrators to be about 1.3 cents in the dollar, so just over 1%. And adding a bit of insult to injury, but perhaps understandably, pilot partners have also said they're exercising their rights not to pay any claims worth less than $50 due to the admin costs. So that basically means anyone whose best jet tickets cost less than $5,000 originally will get absolutely nothing. Mm. And did they come up with an answer as to where all the money went? Yeah, look, it's been pretty well established that the business was actually not really viable. Um, There was testimony in the public examinations which showed that they actually lost money on pretty much every ticket that they sold. The overall business model relied on making money out of GDS rebates and sign-on fees to make it profitable. It did deliver massive volume to the airlines, you know, transacting heaps of tickets. So there were potential payments from overrides and bonuses, quite an interesting business model. But in terms of where the money went, it was also very complex because the business had actually only changed hands just six weeks before it went under. It was originally owned by Rachel James, and she sold it. Her husband, Michael, is well known to the industry because he previously ran Air Australia, which also collapsed, um, owing more than $120 I think. She sold it to this other company called McVicar International. But again, during the public examinations, it turned out that that was a somewhat unusual arrangement, which allowed her, under an option, to buy much of it back two years later, information that only came out during the sworn testimony. 
On top of that, there's a bunch of other entities involved, including one called BestJet Singapore, controlled by guess who? Rachel James. And that company is where Sabre paid its GDS overrides. So um, there was apparently a large sum of money that they thought was in the account there, uh, several million dollars. And they, the administrators worked with the authorities in Singapore. They launched legal action at great expense. Um, but in the end, they just weren't able to get any clarity on where the money went. And they ended up doing a negotiated settlement with the Jameses where they paid about $165,000, uh, half of the outstanding rebates which were payable at the time of the collapse. Wow, so nobody really knows where the rest of the money went. Unfortunately not. Look, the administrator's report is actually deeply unsatisfying and generated a lot of response from our Travel Daily story about it because it also showed that out of that $4 million or so that the pilot partners had to work with, about 2.9 went in legal and accounting fees. And that's after they decided to cut their losses because they concluded it was just going to be too expensive and not cost-effective to chase the debts any further. There's also some transactions highlighted in the dying days of the company, including about 300000 I think, paid to the new owners, the McVickers, which were expense reimbursements. And again, the McVickers indicated they would vigorously defend any attempts to recover what the administrators said could be uncommercial transactions. So they've dropped it. There's uh, 930000 left now, and that's what's going to be used to pay the staff entitlements and the creditors. And that just about wraps it up, unfortunately. So not much resolution for all those angry customers. Huh. They should have used a travel agent. So will there be any more fallout for the directors? Yeah, look, there was heaps of evidence collected in those public examinations in 2019, and it's all been summarised in a report to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, or ASIC. So they've got a brief that they can now use to pursue the matter further if they think it's worth it. Whether they will or not will be anyone's guess. They've got a lot on their plate. Um, A fair bit of time's passed, and as the administrators have already found out, it's going to cost a lot of money to pursue. But as a final note, and again to the massive frustration of everyone involved, Michael James does regularly appear on social media and in various uh, motor racing forums because he somehow managed to maintain a motor racing team to keep him busy in his post-Australian Airlines and post-BestJet lifestyle. No comment. Just as last week's podcast was being recorded, we had the shock news that Qantas was cutting international base commission to just 1%. This will reduce travel agent remuneration by a whopping 80%, and the industry has reacted with a curious mixture of fury and resignation. What are people telling you, Bruce? Look, I'm not sure if this is overdoing it, but I did hear one uh, very wise commentator saying that it's a bit like 9-11 or even the assassination of JFK, in that everyone will remember what they were doing at the moment they heard about these commission cuts. It is truly an historic moment, and no matter that it was one that we all thought might come one day. And as you said, a mixture of anger and acceptance. To me, it definitely spells the end of the traditional travel agent business model, where the clients pay nothing for amazing advice. Travel agents have got to get an income from somewhere, and the logical source is, of course, service fees. But the big complication to me, and definitely, I think, a potential internal source of conflict within the after board, is that Flight Centre, which is obviously still a massive player in the market, has said it's totally opposed to service fees because its main competitors are the airlines themselves. So they want ticket pricing to be a level playing field. There's no question that many clients will be happy to pay a service fee. In fact, many agents already charge them, but still that's on top of commission. I think fees will have to be quite substantial to replace that nice commission income. So what happens next? What's your feeling about where this will leave the industry? 
look, I think it's definitely another nail in the coffin or perhaps putting it more palatably, another sign that anyone who's thinking about exiting the industry might be more likely to do so. We've lost JobKeeper. The government's saying mid-2022 for reopening of international. Now the commission cuts, you know, everything is completely hard. But I should add that there are many agents for whom this announcement was a bit of ho-hum. An opportunity to sell other carriers and anyone who's confident they're adding value to the travel transaction should have no trouble extracting income from that value. Just what that's going to look like may be different for every business, but clearly the tough times continue. They sure do. But on a brighter note, travel advisors from across Australia gathered in Sydney this week for the Virtuoso Australia and New Zealand Forum. Keynote speaker Lane Beachley inspired the crowd after a presentation live via satellite from Virtuoso CEO Matthew Upchurch speaking from Washington, D.C. What was the mood in the room, Bruce? Yeah, it was amazing to see a face-to-face gathering. First one for Virtuoso in a long time, I think. There was definitely a lot of optimism, smiling faces. Agents there were telling me they were really busy. Clients still spending and still spending big on travel. Um, And the issue for many of the advisors there was product. Um, Just what can they sell at the moment because of the border closures? Massive constraints because everything in Australia and New Zealand is booked out, certainly at the top end. For example, Qualia at Hamilton Island, they've closed the books until mid-December at this stage because they're they're booked solid. Now, another factor is, of course, that most properties and products can't get staff because the borders are closed. So there's just a lot of frustration all around. Um, Matthew Upchurch from Virtuoso, he reminded everyone that the fundamentals for a massive boom are definitely in place, and Virtuoso has seen a rebound everywhere that restrictions open up. That's a bit of cold comfort for us Aussies stuck behind the closed borders. It was also great to see lots of suppliers supporting the event, so that's an indication of optimism, but I don't want to be gild the lily too much because I'm sure lots of those suppliers also had credits for participation in previous events that have been cancelled due to the pandemic, so they were always going to turn up. Do you have something to say? Why not let off some steam? News on the Fly has started a hotline where you can share your point of view and it might even be featured on the podcast. Just send us a short voice memo via WhatsApp at plus six one two eight zero zero seven six seven six zero to have your say and keep listening to News on the Fly to see if maybe your voice is featured. Check the show notes for a link to that hotline and a little guide about how to do it. We hope to hear from you soon. There's been big news in the cruise world this week after US President Joe Biden signed into law new legislation allowing cruise ships to operate in US waters without making calls at foreign ports. The relaxation of cabotage restrictions will enable operators to cruise from the US West Coast to Alaska without making their usual stops in Canada, where, as a response to the pandemic, the waters have been closed to international cruise shipping until next year. How many operators will take advantage of this change, do you think? Probably all of them. As you said, this is big news, but we should note this is all subject to still to approval of a whole lot of other protocols by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But what it does show, it's allowing for itinerary planning. So any sort of certainty is great for the industry while the other CDC negotiations go on. So already we've seen Carnival Corporation, I think they were the first um, in announcing voyages out of Seattle to Alaska on Princess, Holland America, and I think Carnival Cruise Line. They were followed very quickly by Royal Caribbean, which interestingly is going to relocate Ovation of the Seas, which is currently operating in Singapore, back to the USA to operate in that region. And Norwegian's also going to put Norwegian Bliss on the Alaskan route um, with a series of seven-night voyages, I think also out of Seattle. I'm sure many others will follow. And is there any progress with the CDC? Do you think the lines will be able to operate a northern summer season? 
Yes, finally, there's action on this front, of course, all enabled by the rapid rollout of vaccinations in the USA, in contrast to what I heard someone here describe as more like a stroll out locally, LOL. The CDC has already said operators can cruise with 95% of passengers vaccinated, but of course, that's a very high bar, and uh, particularly where children are involved, because children are not being vaccinated at the moment. So the lines are also going to run test cruises, which under CDC regulations will allow them to have a lower proportion of vaccinated passengers. Royal Caribbean's already received approval for its first one, and I'm sure the others won't be far behind. So that's definitely some progress. And I should also add that, of course, while the local situation is super frustrating for everyone and ridiculous, even the ability for the big three to operate in their home market of the USA is good news for the local industry. Because firstly, it shows a way forward, but of course, should also get some much needed cash moving through their coffers. That's going to be good for everyone. What about elsewhere in the world? And dare I say here in Australia? I know we talk about it almost every week, but is there any chance of a Kimberley season? Elsewhere in the world, yes, things are happening. Um, Vikings been embraced with open arms by Malta of all places, and uh, now they've expanding capacity there, and they're going to operate three of their 900 passenger ocean ships. Hong Kong uh, is about to announce local cruises for locals. I think with Dream Cruises. Um, that might even be out by the time this podcast gets published. And of course, we're seeing most of the river cruise operators in Europe also announce plans for restarts. We've already had confirmation from Viking, Arosa, Uniworld, Riviera, Quasi Europe, and maybe Arma very shortly. So that is good news. Again, many are dependent on the US market. Uh, so as Europe opens up as planned for American travellers, that should see that happening. Locally, well, not such good news. I know Ponant was this week forced to cancel a 20th of July departure in the Kimberley. I always track the location of Aurora's Greg Mortimer, and it's still firmly ensconced in the Canary Islands, which are about a month sailing away. We've got that 17th of June deadline for the end of the current biosecurity emergency period, i.e. just three weeks away. With not a word on the subject of cruise from the government, I'm willing to bet We'll hear about that being extended till the 17th of September before we do our next episode. Well, I agree. So, sorry, I'm not going to take your bet, unfortunately. Well, whatever happens, you can be sure you will read about it in Travel Daily and Cruise Weekly. And, of course, we'll chat about all the juicy bits here too. In the meantime, thank you again for listening. As we always say, please rate us, review us, follow us, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use to help your industry colleagues find us. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with more news on the fly.